Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. received notice in my personal email just before we began recording that I'm getting a whopping $7.82 as part of the settlement of the corrupt HB6. Woohoo! I wonder how much the lawyers are getting. We'll have to look into this in the story today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Courtney Astolfi. We're beginning again with issue one. There's still a lot of threads to pull on this, so we figured we'd spend one more day. Some interesting news and analysis that came out yesterday. Lisa, let's start there. Our chief political writer, Andrew Tobias, who probably wrote more than 50 stories on this thing since April, listed his takeaways from the battle and the results. What are they? Well, let's focus on Secretary of State Frank LaRose first, because he was basically the one who formulated the idea that became issue one. And while he was, you know, overseeing state elections, he was a strong proponent of issue one. He tried to get his Senate opponents in the U.S. Senate race to donate a million dollars to the yes cause. But today, Democrats are calling him the biggest loser. Ohio Democratic Chair Liz Walters thanked LaRose, actually, by giving the no side ammunition with his statement on tape saying that issue one was 100% about abortion, which was abused in the no ads. And they also may use his pre-election errors, there were some ballot language issues and, and the $20 million cost for the election, to paint him as an incompetent administrator. Also, uh, LaRose's interview with a Cincinnati radio station, he called the Republican issue one opponents as not true conservatives. So uh, that's another bit of ammunition that can be used. And also LaRose said that issue one lost because of -of out-of-state liberal money, which we know is not true. I mean, there was out-of-state money on both sides. Uh, Number two, abortion rights. It makes November passage much easier. It's a moral boost for both leaders and supporters in a very red state. It also shows national donors that Ohio isn't yet a lost cause. Um, But $5 million from the Reproductive Freedom Campaign for this November issue has, you know, they've spent it on ads already, and that's taking away from their November budget. So they have to fixate on fundraising in the next couple of months. Number three, um, this was a GOP lifeline to Democrats. Basically, they scheduled an off-year August election. That made fundraising easier because nothing else was competing. There were no other elections or issues. Um, They raised $12 million for the no campaign, and it was also easier to convince those national donors to to get in on the the fund. Uh, There's no competition from other elections, and all eyes were on Ohio. People are still talking about this election nationally. And number four, 
Such proposals as issue one are proving to be a tough sell. Arkansas and South Dakota voters defeated similar proposals in 2022. Arkansas, the margin was 59 to 41%. South Dakota, 67 to 33%. Supporters say the loss is in part because issue one was hard to understand. That's their argument. And that's why Senate President Matt Huffman says he wants to bring it up as an issue yet again. I, I was interested in all the information about Frank LaRose because I, I actually believe that guy is toast. I mean, he tied himself to one of the biggest failures ever. He did make mistake after mistake. He did shoot his mouth off. And anybody running against him will use that against him. His Republican competitors for the, the Senate seat Sherrod Brown will use it. Uh, he he just made kind of a buffoon out of himself, and nobody wants to elect a buffoon. So this, I do think he's going to suffer mightily as a result of this. It's a it's an interesting analysis by Andrew. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, former Republican Attorney General Betty Montgomery was a staunch and vocal opponent of Issue One, catching some ire from a whining Matt Huffman post-defeat Tuesday. Reporter Jake Zuckerman caught up with Montgomery Wednesday. What is her perspective on the outcome? Well, I think the top line takeaway here is that she's calling for independent redistricting. So let's start with that. But 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 let's let's remember that Montgomery came out. She was one of the vocal opponents. She was joined by former GOP governors Bob Taft, John Kasich, and like you said, Matt Huffman on Tuesday night pointed to their opposition as one of the reasons why he thought the measure went down. And when we talked to Montgomery after issue one did go down on flames and on Tuesday, she she says she thinks the gerrymandered Republican legislature has just awakened a sleeping giant in the electorate in Ohio. She sees voters being revived and, and re-engaged, and that includes what a reporter, Jake Zuckerman, described as refugees of a bygone Republican party. So we know that Montgomery had a split with the state party over Trump. She opposed it, and and she was part of that breakup in, in the party here locally. And And she sees this as reinvigorating those folks who have felt kind of like, I don't have a place to be in politics since the Trump years have ushered in that break in the party. So, you know, she talked about that, but she also talked about the need to get lawmakers out of the redistricting process. Jake asked her whether she planned to get behind Maureen O'Connor's plan to create some kind of independent redistricting body. And and she said straight up, she thinks it has to go outside the legislature. And and part of that perspective, she said, was fed from her former perch as attorney general. She thinks it's wise to take it out of the hands of the General Assembly. There is a fascinating comparison here that's a little subtle. Betty Montgomery is viewing the electorate as having wisdom. They've awakened a sleeping giant. They're aware of what's going on. Matt Huffman sees them as sheep. He, he doesn't view it as that the voters made the decision based on the facts. He's saying this because people like Betty Montgomery came out against it. He's basically saying they're sheep that just follow what they're told, which isn't what happened. The voters 
learned of this. There was lots of publicity about it and they rejected it because it is terrible policy and there really isn't a single argument to be made for it. He refuses to accept that. He views them as sheep and he thinks if I put this up again, I can herd them. I still don't believe his colleagues will support putting it up again. They've been bitten by a rabid dog with this these results. And when you're near a rabid dog, the thing you do is get away from it. That's what John Kasich did with HB5 when his, his anti-union stance got just torched by the voters. I cannot believe that the Senate or the House is going to want to do this again, because now it'll be posed as they're going against the will of the voters. I think it was more Matt Matt Huffman having his sour grapes because he got his butt kicked. You know, I think it's interesting. Montgomery's pointing to a slice of the party that aligns with where she was, rejecting Trump in the direction it's gone since that split. But she also said when she was out opposing issue one, she just heard from a lot of everyday folks too. And and she found that to be reassuring that that maybe our democracy is sometimes sleepy here in Ohio, but it's there and in her view, ready to perhaps rumble. Well, we're not represented by people who represent us. The, the, the gerrymandering has created a legislature of people who do not care about the interest of Ohioans. They're all trying to out Trump each other. Matt Huffman is is king of the Trumpians. And that's that's what this election showed. Ohio is not what the legislature purports to be. And we've got to get control of that, get rid of these guys and get the kind of people that represent true Ohioans again, which is what Benny Montgomery is about. And it was good to see her back in the political spotlight because we have not seen her like in quite some time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We wondered earlier this week whether we see hardline ramifications for the doctor who shamed of all of Ohio with testimony about the coronavirus vaccine turning us all into magnets. She got the ramifications, Lisa, but not for what we thought. What happened? So yesterday, the uh, state uh, medical board suspended the medical license of Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, but this was on procedural grounds, not solely because of her June 2021 outrageous statements about the COVID vaccine to an Ohio House Health Committee. Um, She repeatedly objected to their overtures and their investigation. She put off investigators looking into her conduct. She refused to answer questions. Board member Dr. Jonathan Feibel says, you are not above the law and you must comply with the investigation. And until you do, your license is suspended. There were over 350 complaints that were received by the state medical board in the wake of her comments in which she told the House Health Committee that COVID vaccines magnetized people, it gave them cancer and ALS, and it had something that interacted with 5G towers. Her attorney, Tom Renz, who is also an anti-vaxxer, says it's harassment on her free speech rights. Sound familiar? Her (laughs) civil rights were violated. There was no harm or fraud to patients shown in this investigation, and he called it very much like a lynch mob. And Renz and Tenpenny brought 40 supporters to the hearing, um, and they were somewhat vocal, um, but they you know, she can't practice medicine. She cannot sell anti-vaccination goods or services as a physician, which gives her more, you know, marketing power or veracity. And But she can still write books. And she's already written at least one anti-vaccination book. Well, I, it sounds like the medical board was in the same position as Jack Smith in, in prosecuting Trump. That 
they're not going in the free speech area. They, they, I mean, she said ridiculous things that you could argue a doctor proselytizing on vaccines turning into magnets is doing serious harm because there are people who aren't getting vaccinated as a result. But that's not what she's punished for. She's punished because she didn't cooperate with an investigation of her wacko statements. And you can't really fight that. She did. She resisted the investigators. And so that's what she slapped for. There is no First Amendment cause because this was about an investigation. Very interesting. That's that's how they decided to take her on. You're listening to Today in Ohio. School bathrooms are in the courts again, where they likely will spend a lot of time in coming years. How did a federal court rule on an Ohio school district's transgender bathroom policy? Courtney. Yeah, this involves the Bethel Local School District down in Miami County. And federal judge Monday sided with the school district and upheld that district's decision to let trans students use communal restrooms that align with their gender identity. And this move dismissed essentially a challenge from a group of parents and students who objected to this move on on religious grounds. The judge here basically said, you know, this wasn't a case to be decided necessarily by a federal lawsuit. You know, he knows the parties want to vindicate the allegations they've raised here and, and, and air out their complaints. But he didn't see how this complaint passed legal muster under, you know, the different things it had to the Constitution, statutory rules and, and precedent and things like that. But, you know, the substance of this case is is interesting. The, the case came about after a middle school, middle school student who was trans transferred to the district in 2020. The student found it difficult to use the single person restroom that was tucked in the nurse's office because it was often occupied. And then, you know, she felt ostracized. People were taunting her for using the restroom. So she just avoided using it. So enter the school district. They started allowing her to use the girls' communal restroom in 2022 with the other students that was in line with the school's anti-harassment policy. And school board members said their legal team told them, Title IX requires this. You got to let her use the restroom that aligns with her gender identity. Parents got worked up, filed a bunch of lawsuits. One of them was this federal case, and it involved some claimed violations of the open meetings law when this new policy went into effect. On the plaintiff side of this, several several folks are Muslim and they said being forced to use facilities of the opposite, you know, sex essentially violated their religious beliefs. Christians were also plaintiffs and they claimed their kids were were uncomfortable using the restrooms now. Plaintiffs all around said their kids, you know, tried to wait till they till they got home uncomfortable that this other person was also allowed to use the restroom. Yeah, I wonder if a single kid actually complained to the parents or if this was all the parents. We'll see this kind of thing. It's culture war material that, like I said, we'll be seeing for a long time, and I'm sure it does not end here. Yeah, the judge, he he said maybe they continue to seek redress through the state courts, but they said the plaintiffs either failed to like bring forth a cognizable case or controversy And even if the allegations are true, they fail to hit those needed legal standards for it to proceed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Say goodbye to the salad days of the pandemic when public cash was flowing like Niagara Falls. Gateway, which runs the two sports stadiums for the Cavs and the Guardians, approved a big bundle of spending Wednesday with no idea where the money will come from. Same old story. Layla, what is it? 
Basically, the Cavs want new escalators and elevators and a new broadcasting system, all to the tune of $24.4 million, courtesy of the county's syntax money. And the board of the Gateway Economic Development Corporation approved those expenses yesterday, even though, as you said, Chris, there isn't money to cover this. For now, the Cavs are going to front the money with the expectation that Gateway, Gateway will reimburse them. But how? The, the county syntax has, has allocated $92 million to each of the city's professional sports stadiums through 2034. But the Cavs have spent $82 million of that already, and that doesn't include this new batch of expenses. Both the Guardians and the Cavs pay rent to Gateway, which in the last 12 months totaled just a little shy of $5 million between the two organizations. Despite that, Gateway is running in the red by about fifty-five grand over the past year. So, okay, raise your hand if you're sick of using public money to build palaces for pro sports teams. What well, is going on? And let's point out, the, the, the sleazy part of this is the Cavs came forward a few years back to yes. ask for mm-hmm. public support to redo the entire arena. Mm-hmm. So it was. It's a big, spectacular front and all sorts of money's poured in. They knew the escalators were right. wearing out. They didn't put him into that. Because that was not part more. of that budget. You're yeah. right. And so now, a few years later, after we've, you know, all that money that's been committed, future bond money, all that money's been committed, and now they're back saying, oh, by the way, we need escalators and elevators. Right. And, and I, you know, the, there's no money. We, we don't have the money to build the jail, right? We know we need a half billion or more dollar jail. That which serves public need, the, the, the people in the jail, the wards of the county, it's a required public service. It is completely shameful what the cabs are doing right. here. And in, we've seen it before. We have Lucas Deprile is going to have a story this weekend looking at the history of this. The sports teams front, quote unquote, the money, leaving Gateway in huge debt, waiting for a way to seize public public dollars, precious public dollars to, to give them luxuries that they should have included when we spent all that money years ago. I mean, we endorsed that thing. We came and said, this is good. You know, this will make the arena good for the next 20, 25 years. It's the living room of Northeast Ohio. And the bums didn't say, by the way, we'll be coming back later with a $25 million. That's ask. right. It feels like they just put that one in their back pocket and waited for this for the renovation to be done and then to come right back and say that this is part that the escalators and elevators are part of gateway's obligation toward capital repairs it just turns my stomach you, um, you guys are pointing fingers at the camps but i i gotta say you gotta point at the public officials who struck that deal who allowed major capital repairs to continue to be funded by taxpayers where's the due diligence on on the government side of this when they were hashing that deal to guard against things like this good point lisa I know. I was just going to say, and I think it was Courtney that covered the opening uh, after the renovations at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. And I remember there were a lot of flashy aesthetics that really didn't, you know, they were just, you know, just eye candy. It was nothing like like major renovations. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, because they well, know that major capital repairs have to be paid by the public under the terms mm. of the lease. Yeah, and you could argue that the public officials who moved that $70 million project through, and the Cavs did put money into that, we should point out, they should have asked at the time, what, what's ahead? That, you know, wh- how far does this get us? What are you coming back with in the next five, six years? Because they might have structured the financing differently so that they could pay this stuff instead of being, oops, 
you know, we don't have the money. What are we going to do? There's a long history of this. And, and it's just scummy that this surprise landed on the taxpayers' laps. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, Sean McDonald compared slot machine betting to sports betting in Ohio. Where do the gamblers spend more? They spend way more on slot machines, about three times more. So betting on slot machines through June was $12.4 billion at the 11 casinos and racinos. That's about 16,000 machines. Sports bets came in at only $3.8 billion. And slots are a much bigger generator of revenue for the state. 1.06 billion in slots, only 540 million in sports wagers in revenue through June. But the numbers are kind of squishy because people will re wager their winnings, especially in slot machines, re-wagered winnings are counted again. And then you got to talk about promotional credits. There are promo credits that are offered by sports betting apps where you bet $5, get $200 introductory deals. And then slots, you know, they have promotional credits you can play on the slots. So slots, there are about $180 million in promo credits played on slots. There were about $486 million in bonus bets on sports bets most of them in January, just right after it was legalized. And uh, Ohio Casino Control Commission spokeswoman Jessica Frank says there's really no way to know how much money is put into slot machines and how many bets were with previous winnings. She said the casinos and racinos probably know how much money is put into slots, but they're not required to report that, and they don't. Yeah, I think nobody expected sports betting to overtake the other forms of betting. I think sports betting surprised people with how big it is, but the others are are huge. I wonder what percentage of Ohioans do any kind of gambling. These numbers are staggering, right? I mean, you think about Mm -hmm. the gigantic amount of money that is going into all forms of gambling. What percentage of the state is doing that? Because I don't think I know many people who are spending time in the racinos or doing sports gambling, but maybe I'm an outlier. Yeah, don't they have, I know in Texas, they would have, uh, you know, buses of seniors. They would take them over to Louisiana so they could gamble. But um, yeah, I don't know if they do that here in Ohio where they have hey, the, the senior gambling bus. Let's go to the casino. I don't know if they do that here. They did at one point, but now I think it's so ubiquitous. You don't need to. People can pretty much get to a gambling den pretty simply. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's all seniors gambling their retirement. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, we learned of the death this week of someone who had been on the ballot like clockwork in Cuyahoga County for decades. Who was Jerry First? Yeah, he was the last elected county clerk of courts, and he had quite a tenure overseeing that office. Gerald First died last weekend at the age of 89, and he was the clerk of courts for 36 years. That's a heck of a long time, 1975 to 2012. And and that got him just through the transition from that position being an elected position under the old commissioner form of government through to right after the reforms went through and all those jobs turned into appointed positions. And, you know, I think the big takeaway here from Jerry First's career is You know, at the end of his tenure, he went through a wild period in Cuyahoga County politics, the Russo, Demora, McFall corruption first kept, you know, the stain of that whole scandal off of the clerk's office. And his name's 
weren't in his name was not in any of the indictments. So when that was all consuming and everywhere around him, he held firm. And reporter Corey Schaefer talked to Judge Nancy first. She's a distant cousin of Jerry's, and she said she babysat for his kids back in the 60s just to get a little flavor of, you know, kind of that view of the kind of man he was. And 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 she told us he was as honest as the day is long. He was a devout Catholic, public servant. You know, when he retired in 2012, he told he told the plane dealer how he just he didn't want to double dip. A lot of public officials who have been around for a long time draw down two two salaries through the double dipping process. And he didn't like that. And that just kind of, I think, speaks to his character. You know, Laura Johnston wrote that retirement story, oh, interestingly. Okay. Uh, he was a gentleman. He was a good guy. He also was tied to one of the most embarrassing corrections I've ever seen a newspaper run. I'd been here about two years and we, I had nothing to do with this, so don't blame me, but we ran this big story, uh, a scandal about how Jerry first wasn't doing one of the major elements of his job, a whole long thing. And two months later, we ran a correction that said, oops, that really wasn't part of his job at all. And I, to this day, don't know how we could have made a mistake like that. You would think at some point along the way, we would have said to him, hey, you're not doing your job. And he would have said, that's not my job. Uh, but he was a gentleman about it. And uh, the correction, I guess, was all that he wanted. You know, it's funny you say that. We talked to Tim McGinty, the former prosecutor, and he pointed out first was like one of the very few people who didn't have enemies, didn't really have a real political opponent. And kind of like you're talking about, no one really doubted his integrity. Yeah, he was a good guy. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland police, overwhelmed by a summer of crime, are getting some more help. Who from, Layla? Well, Mayor Justin Bibb and U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott are joining forces to push this new initiative that they're calling Operation 216 this month and next month. It's going to focus on neighborhoods that are really bearing the brunt of this violence epidemic we've seen. Members of Elliott's Northern Ohio Violent Fugitive Task Force will join, will work with police to, to take those with outstanding warrants off the streets. Earlier this summer, the city announced an agreement with the Ohio State Highway Patrol to help with traffic patrols, and they said Cuyahoga County Sheriff's deputies will help patrol downtown streets because, of course, Cleveland police are, are dealing with a crippling staffing shortage. Just, Justin Bibb has proposed a package of incentives to help recruiting to the police force. Uh, some of those have to be negotiated with the police union. But meanwhile, we, you know, we're on pace to exceed 192 killings this year in Cleveland. Already the city has 122 homicides and shootings are daily occurrences. I don't know how much because of the staffing they can do to help, but it, I think the, the symbolism of them saying, yes, this is bad. We want to help. It gets back to what we've talked about a lot. Where's Mike DeWine? He, he's right. the... He's got the big pulpit. If he came to town and he got law enforcement together and treated this like the crisis it is, it would give it that elevated sense of importance. Exactly. And with him absent completely, I, I think others like the marshal service are stepping in to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be what's happening here. These partnerships are trying to fill that void. But recruiting for Cleveland police is so, I, it's, it's such a mystery. I mean, I guess I don't, people just don't want to be cops today in the environment that, that has been created these recent years. 
Yeah, well, they're right. There's a lot of criticism of police. Right. It's also a very militaristic kind of thing. And I don't know that young people want to be part of a organization that is so autocratic where you have really no individual rights. I wonder if the consent decree plays into that as well. Yeah, it might. It might. I just, I'm, I'm surprised though that they haven't made some effort to coordinate all the local police departments that are out there into somehow having a patrolling plan or a presence plan that, that makes police more visible on the street. Because you do have all sorts of hijinks going on, which probably wouldn't if the people committing it saw a patrol car. But there's just that coordination is lacking. Mike DeWine is absent. And this is what we're left with. I'm surprised that city council hasn't revived the call for mini stations. <laughs> which, <laughs> You know, the police mini stations are all feel like that comes up in conversation all the time that they want those outposts in their neighborhoods where they believe, you know, visibility would police visibility would be. Um, greater if they just set up these mini stations. That was always uh, the solution, right? Yeah, and I was covering City Hall as those things were closing down. And the reason they were closing down is that they didn't find them to be that effective. Mike Polensic will tell you otherwise. No, they were great. They were great. But if they were great, they wouldn't have shut them down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday's episode. Come back Friday to wrap up the week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening. 